I'll follow you, Pat. Amen and wow, right? I told Brittany, Amanda, you've kind of got the perfect Crowder voice. It was, it was just wonderful. Um, all of a sudden, I was listening to uh, YouTube, uh, having some, some music on while I'm studying and, and listening to different mixes, and, and, I, and I kept hearing these songs that I really liked, and every time I'd turn around, it was David Crowder's song. It's like, well, golly. Um, and so thank you, Matt, for uh, uh, picking that, that song for us. Uh, just a great reminder, because he is good. He is God. He's a good God Almighty, and so we worship him today. Uh, children ages uh, three through first grade can head back to children's worship if they'd like to at this point. Um, for the rest of us, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll be reading the first six verses together. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted, enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, just a, a great reminder to us that you are uh, such a great God. And our desire is that no matter what comes, that we will be found praising your name and, and using the full strength of our voices to declare that you are a great and an awesome God. And Lord Jesus, that you are our high priest, and we come to you our priest. We do not come to the Father without you, without a mediator but we do come with the true and the great mediator. And we ask that you would bring us into that throne room that we may receive the blessing that comes from the entire Godhead. Father, we pray for our children and children's worship. Would you please allow the gospel to work with power in their hearts, that you'll bring them to a true and a lively faith in you, the one true God. And for us, Father, would you strengthen our faith? Would you strengthen our love for you? Would you grant to us a better knowledge of yourself? And if there are any here today, Lord, who have yet to come to know you as their Savior, would you please open up their hearts even this day and that they will see the richness of your love and the greatness of the salvation which you give us in Jesus. We ask for all of us, Lord, change us that we may worship you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a, a, a time in my ministry that I thought one of the, the great delights of, of preaching would be able to begin a, a sermon by talking about uh, Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. I just dreamt of those opportunity and those, those times when I could do that. I'm going to slide this back if that's all right. Otherwise, I'm going to knock it over. And I know some of you are like, yeah, we've been waiting for that too. It's about time we got to a little bit of Anselm in here, right? Well... Um, I don't usually do that because I also remember a counsel that was given, pastor never, 
ever assume that your congregation is interested in what you're interested in. And I think that was wiser counsel that I received, and so we haven't done that. But it does apply, and every now and then we we need to look at these uh, philosophical arguments, and we need to understand a little bit about that. If you're interested in in apologetics, this applies there, and and that is, how how do we demonstrate that God exists? And the reality is we know that, that people question that. And honestly, there are times in our own lives where we're like, yeah, I have doubts from time to time, and, and God resolves those and does a wonderful job with that. But, but those questions can be there. Well, Anselm wanted to understand the existence of God simply through the use of reason. Because he believed that, uh, as we read in, in the book of Romans, that God has made himself known to every man who is here. So therefore, we should be able, by reason, to be able to understand him. And so he issued into a, a, a prayer in which he presents his argument. And I'm going to read just a, a portion of that prayer that should come up here pretty quickly. Um, and I need it because I didn't write it down elsewhere. <laughs> there, there it is. Um, he says, Therefore, O Lord, you are not only that than which a greater cannot be conceived but you are a being greater than can be conceived. For since it can be conceived that there is such a being, that being uh, than which nothing greater can be conceived, you could conceive that there could be such a being. If you are not this very being, a greater than you can be conceived, but this is impossible. And some of you are saying, this is why I hate philosophy, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It seems like he's tying himself all up into a knot. But, but if, you, if you look closely and you follow his line and reasoning, what he's saying in essence is, and, and I loved it when my, my apologetics professor put it this way. He said very simply, a real chocolate sundae is better than imagined chocolate sundae. Oh, I get it now. Right? Because we're not going to deny that, right? As great as you might imagine, that Sunday, that chocolate Sunday, if it's real, it's greater. And so his point is that God is that one that is greater than the greatest that you could imagine. That understanding of just how great he is. And why is he so great? Because he's real, because he's not in our imagination. Because he's not in the ideas of our mind, but he is real and reveals himself to us. That's the greatness of God, and that's the greatness of Jesus as the high priest. This is the point, many centuries before Anselm, that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to the Jewish audience that he's writing to. He's trying to show them That Jesus is the better high priest because he's the one true high priest. He's the one who's real. Everything else is pretending like, is imitating, but he's the real thing. And that's what this passage is is laying out for us. He's showing us that reality. And and we see it in in three different ways. And I want us to, uh, um, two different ways. I want us to to focus on those for for just the next uh, several minutes. And the first is that we see that, that, that he's the one true high priest because he alone serves in heaven. Now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain." Notice the emphasis on heaven from, from these verses. And in verse 1, he says, the, um, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then in verse 2, he, he, looks about the, he talks about the true tabernacle. Not, not the image of the tabernacle which was down on earth, but the true tabernacle. And then in verse uh, 4, he talks about the fact that, that he's not on earth. He's not an earthly uh, priest. He's, he's then a heavenly priest. And then in verse 5, he talks about the fact that what is on the earth is merely a copy and a shadow. In all of these different ways, the author of Hebrews, in talking to this Jewish audience, this Jewish audience who would worship at the tabernacle, the temple, who understood the high priest, understood all of the priests along the line, who were used to that and were aware of all of that. And what he's saying to him is to recognize that these things are shadows. There's one who's actually in the heaven of God, who isn't simply doing this on earth, but is before the Lord our God, the King of kings. He wants them to see, since Jesus is the high priest in heaven, why would you settle for the imitation? Right? I mean, if you have a choice of real lemonade and imitation lemonade, where are you going? Right? You're taking a Coke. No, wait. (laughs) But you go to the real. Why do I want the thing that's supposed to be like the real thing when I can have the real thing? That's the entire argument that he's trying to get across to these Jewish believers, these Hebrews, so that they would understand the importance of walking in the new covenant. He begins with that point, and he does that in a couple different ways. He shows them that, that he alone is, is serves in the heaven, that, and that in serving in heaven, we see that his work is finished. Imagine what it was like at the end of the day for a Levitical priest. Okay, have you ever thought about what it'd be like in the day of a Levitical priest? Think about the number of animals that you would have to sacrifice. Talk about the the idea of the, the blood on your hand. Think about the smells that you would never get out of your nostrils, both good and bad. Think about all of the, the stories that people would tell of the hardships and their failures and the sins that they've committed. And all day long, you've been dealing with this, and you end the day, and you ceremonially cleanse your hands. And you go home, and you sit down, and you rest, knowing tomorrow morning, you have to get up and do it again. But not so Jesus. Jesus took his seat, which has a significant meaning for us, I want to understand that meaning from a a few different passages, mostly from the book of Hebrews, but I want to start out with John chapter 17 and verse 4. John 17 is the high priestly prayer uh, of of our Savior. It's what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. A little little, uh, um, preview. Uh, Al will be preaching on this passage uh, in just a few weeks, so get ready for that. But Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what he's praying when, when the, the sweat-like drops of blood were coming off of his forehead, this is the prayer he was praying. 
This is where he is. This is what he's praying. And as he's praying this at the end of his life, just before he's about to be uh, uh, arrested and crucified, he's praying and he begins his prayer with verse 4 and he says to the Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Jesus, at the end of his life, recognizes, I've accomplished the work. I've finished the task. I've done the deed. There is but one thing left for him to do, and that is to suffer the wrath of God for the sins of all of his people. But he says, I'm there. That's what I've accomplished. And after he's accomplished it, what does he do? Well, we look at uh, passages in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is the first area that talks about him sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, that is, when he had fully borne the wrath of the Father for all of the sins of his people, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The sitting down at the right hand of the majesty is directly tied in the book of Hebrews to Jesus having accomplished our salvation, to Jesus' death having been given over to the Father as a sacrifice for our sins. It was in that giving it up that he's now able to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We see this term again used in chapter 10, verse 12 where we read about Jesus, and that not through the blood of, talking about Jesus' sacrifice, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This idea, oh, and that's chapter 9. That's not what I was looking for. I was like, well, that kind of ties, but it's not as clear as it was in my study, it seems, because chapter 10, 12, as you all were reading while I was speaking, and you're all thinking, he didn't know where he is. And you're right. <laughs> Can we cut all that from the tape? It's a, <laughs> and John says, no. <laughs> but he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hopefully that even emphasized that point even more. You see the point. This connection between sitting down at the right hand and his making purification of sins. That connection. In John chapter 12, I'll be sure, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, <laughs> get the right book, right? Chapter, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, endured the cross, despised the shame. And what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God is consistently tied to Jesus having completed his work. His work is finished. Now that's, that's easy to affirm, right? Amen. Amen. Yes. Jesus' work is finished. I get that. He's, he's paid it all. He's done that once for all. The reality is, honestly, if we examine our lives and we, we, we take stock and inventory of how we live our life each day and we look at moment to moment, we begin to discover that it's sometimes a little bit harder to believe. I may know it, but I don't always act as though that's the truth. It's hard to do that. From time to time, it becomes a difficulty because sometimes, sometimes I have this feeling that, that my suffering adds to his work. 
Shortly after I became a Christian, I remember witnessing to uh, a, a gal uh, that I worked with and her mentioning that her idea was that as she was walking along and she stubbed her toe, she was convinced that was for the, some of the sins she'd committed. And we wouldn't say that, right? But we look at other sufferings and sometimes don't we wonder? Don't we wonder, what did I do? What is my failing that caused this? Oh, but don't you see? Jesus' work is finished. So our suffering in no way adds to what he's done. It's already finished. Stubbing my toe, that's just a, oh, that's a shame. But it wasn't for my sin. That's not why it's there. I also have to begin to understand that, that um, my obedience also doesn't add to his work. Sometimes I want to obey because I think that'll make it easier for God to love me. I want to obey because I think maybe that'll make up for the times where I, I sin against him, right? Isn't that kind of the whole idea of the, the foxhole uh, bargain that, that men will make with, with uh, God? That God, if you'll get me out of here, I'll live for you the rest of my life? Well, you probably ought to, but that doesn't make up for the sins that you committed in the past, right? My living for him doesn't add to the work of Christ. He's finished. He sat down. It was completed. To begin to have that mindset and to understand that, that my suffering doesn't add to his work and my obedience doesn't add to his work because Jesus is taking his seat. In the same way, my failure doesn't enhance his grace. It doesn't make him more gracious just because I'm more sinful. Because it was all paid for when Jesus was seated at that right hand of the Father. His love was given to us complete. It's finished. It's full. And therefore, you can stand as a recipient of grace. To stand and live your life as one who has received grace. And think about what that then means. What does it mean to be a recipient of grace? Because most of the time, I stand as a man who's accomplished it. I stand as, as, as a man of personal integrity. I stand as, as a man who, who, who has it together. It's harder to stand as a man who's received the grace of God. Not because I deserved it, but because he's so kind. I want to use a couple of illustrations, particularly from uh, Max Licato, because he does great illustrations. Um, he tells a story of pastor of a large church, and at different times in his service, he'll, he'll just from time to time say, hey, I've got $20 for anyone who'd like to come up here and get it. And he looks out at all the dignified members of the congregation just sitting there. Most of them are thinking, nah, we'll see how high I'll go. Right? <laughs> but $20? Nah, nah. And he remembers the time, one time, that he said that, and all of a sudden he sees this kid come running out of the, 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 the row, and his mom reaches out, grabs his foot, and takes him down, but that kid was coming up. He's like, 20 bucks, I'm in! And there was no shame, I'm going after it, because I need that. And, and, it's like, and he says, and, and that needs to be our attitude, for the grace of God. I don't have to be dignified, because I need it. I need it worse than that child needs it. I want to, 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 to find that grace that God gives to us. The other picture that he gives is the idea, imagine what it would be like for an individual who decides 
that he just wants to give you a, a, a brand new Porsche. Okay, he pulls it up here on Sunday morning, gives you the key, here's, here's your new Porsche. All the taxes are paid, title's done, everything's fine, it's even full of gas. It's yours, free. He said, man, that's amazing. I got, I got a five, can I give that to you? And if he takes that five, now all of a sudden that Porsche isn't grace anymore, is it? It's just a really good deal. Yeah. Grace isn't just a really good deal. It's absolutely and completely free. I want to read to you a little bit. The, the other side of that is how, how we receive that grace and, and that concept of grace. And this comes from John Piper's book, Future Grace. He talks about the debtor's ethic. He says, the debtor's ethic says, because you have done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. This impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift and the goodwill of another. He did not mean it to be an impulse to return favors. Isn't that really profound? Because sometimes we treat our Christianity as a debtor's ethic. That Jesus died for us, so, so I guess I gotta, right? I gotta give him everything. I gotta live for him. I'm, I'm glad he did. It's really, really nice. But it's, it's now what is owed. But that's not the idea of grace. To be able to stand in grace is to stand as an individual who is fully and completely forgiven all of their sins and unconditionally and irrevocably accepted by God the Father. I don't have to, I don't have to kowtow. I don't have to have any false humility. I can simply stand as an individual deeply grateful for the love of my Father, which has been given to me in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. His work is finished. And so we can stand forgiven. His offering is also accepted. Look at verse 3. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. He's pointing out that, that the, 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 the high priest would always bring something. And maybe it's a prayer, maybe it's, it's the various sacrifice, always had to have something. And he said, so it would be inappropriate if Jesus didn't have something to offer too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what did Jesus bring? Jesus offered to the Father a perfect life. And we can look at perfect any way we want to. You look at perfect the way we use perfect, that it's without flaw, that all will do. You want to look at it as perfect as complete, reaching exactly the, the end that it was designed for, that'll do too. Either way, Jesus offered to the Father a perfect life, his own perfect life, having fulfilled the covenant of works. When God created Adam and Eve, he entered into a covenant of works with him in which he was required to have perfect and perpetual obedience to God the Father in order to have salvation. He put him in the garden, and he said, you've got all this to eat, just don't eat from that tree over there. 
The rest of it's yours, right? You gave him responsibilities. You need to uh, care over everything. You need to be fruitful, multiply, and don't eat that. Man broke that. But you see, the covenant continued. So when Jesus came into the world, he obeyed it perfectly. Every stipulation of the law of God, he himself fulfilled. So that the hope and the salvation which was offered in the covenant of works could be given to us based on grace. Grace because it's not based on what we have done, but what's been done by him. He fulfills also the covenant of grace in that he takes upon himself all of the punishments for failure to follow the covenant. And he earns by his life all of the rewards which are offered in the covenant. And we receive both by faith. And we receive those benefits for what he has accomplished for us by his life. See, we see this that, that that perfect life was, was accepted when we read um, that he is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. He didn't just take his seat in the back of heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. At the place of greatest honor, he is seated there. Because that sacrifice, that offering of himself, was accepted by the Father. You see, in these two elements, we see Jesus suffering upon the the cross, if you will, the passive obedience of Christ, to where he receives all of the wrath due to for our sins. And in the second one, the offering up of his perfect life, we see the active obedience of Jesus, his obeying on our behalf. The second one, the the, the obedience, provides for us the covering. The first one takes away our filthy rags, which is our own sin. The second one gives us a covering by which we may go into the presence of God. Do you remember the parable in Matthew chapter 22 that Jesus tells uh, about the, the wedding feast? In Matthew chapter 22, verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, remember he'd sent out his, his servants to, to uh, bring people into the wedding feast and some of the servants were killed and some of the other uh, the people invited were too busy. He gets upset, he goes out into the highways and byways and bring them in and he bring them in. And so uh, he goes in to look at the dinner guests and he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and throw him to the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. I've always found that somewhat of a, 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 a challenging uh, passage. Have you? It's like, well, you invited me. <laughs> um, and then I read from uh, Albert Barnes, a commentary on this passage, and I appreciated he, he was able to really shed some light. And I want to read this to you. He says, the garments worn on festival occasions were chiefly long white robes, and it was the custom of the person who made the feast to prepare such robes to be worn by the guests. This renders the conduct of this man more inexcusable. He came in his common and ordinary dress as he was taken from the highway, 
And though he had not a garment of his own suitable for the occasion, yet one had been provided for him if he had applied for it. His not doing it was expressive of the highest disrespect for the king. This beautifully represents the conduct of the hypocrite in the church. A garment of salvation might be his, performed by the hands of his Savior and dyed in his blood. But the hypocrite chooses the filthy rags of his own righteousness and thus offers the highest contempt for that provided in the gospel. He is to blame not for being invited, Not for coming, if he would come, for he is freely invited, but for offering the highest contempt to the king of Zion in presenting himself with all his filth and rags and in refusing to be saved in the way provided in the gospel. It's to say, I will not be saved by the righteousness of Jesus. I'll be saved by my own righteousness or not at all. To which God says, yes, That is true. Yes, those are the two options. If you're going to be saved by your own righteousness, you will be saved, not at all. And we have this beautiful salvation that Jesus offers to us. And his offering has been accepted by heaven and of us. The Jewish believers who are reading this for the first time They're reading this. They've grown up in in the Old Covenant. They're seeing all that's taking place. And he's saying to them, remember that Jesus is the real high priest. He's the one who's in heaven. And to you, I say the same thing. Maybe some have just grown up in the church and you've always been a part of the church. And it's really easy to just kind of keep going to church. And I want, to, I want to just challenge you, come to Jesus. Because it isn't about the church. The church will let you down. I've had multiple conversations in the last few weeks of people who, if you will, they're refugees of the church. Um, they've been hurt in the church. The church has let them down. And sadly, their faith was in the church and not in Jesus. And I want to challenge each of us here that it's Jesus who won't let you down. Come to him, the real high priest, not those who are pretending, if you will, who are imitating, but to him who is the real one. He alone serves in heaven. This is the first way in which he shows that he's the one true high priest. The second is that he's the only mediator of a better covenant. I think the only thing better than being able to uh, preach a sermon where I start out with Anselm's uh, ontological argument for the existence of God is one where I also get to talk about covenant theology. Guess what? (laughs) It's a twofer day. Uh, We're going to talk about covenant theology because covenant theology is so central to the mindset of the Jews who were hearing this letter. They understood covenant theology. They recognized how God works. And the idea is that God relates to his people in covenant. The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 7, paragraph 1, puts it this way. It says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. The idea is that it's, God is too great for us to ever have any relationship with him. We can never benefit from God unless he reaches down to us. And he did by way of covenant. O. Palmer Robertson defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. 
To those who are officer candidates who are going through the covenant class, write that down. It'll be on the test, just a reminder. But a bond and blood sovereignly administered, what does that mean? It means it's, it's a relationship that has life and death consequences, and it's dictated from the top down. God told us what the terms of the covenant are. This is how God relates to his people in this life and death relationship in which he declares what the terms are. There are two covenants when we look at the Bible. Two covenants. There are only two. They are the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works was with Adam. Most people believe it lasted maybe less than a day. (laughs) Aren't we a great people? (laughs) And, uh, and we broke that covenant, and so God immediately entered into the covenant of grace, which has gone on since uh, day seven of creation until today, that it's, it, it continues. And the covenant of grace has several different administrations, several different ways in which there are different rights and different uh, things that were going on, different truths that were being revealed. Okay, and that goes, uh, in, in, and in the covenant of grace, there are two aspects Two major administrations. The first one goes from Adam until David, and that is the the old administration of the covenant of grace. We talk about the old covenant or the Old Testament. Okay, the new covenant or the new testament goes from Jesus until present, and this is this is what we're dealing with. Now you see that the Jews were in between, right? They'd grown up in the old administration. And now they're living in the new administration. And it's a confusing time, and they don't know exactly where to go and and how to live that out. And so the author of Hebrews is telling them that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Here's that word again, better. It's a word that means, the root is vigor, power, strength. It's better because of its vitality. It's better because of its power. It's better because of its strength. It's easy to say that it's better because it's more effectual. It accomplishes it. It's able to accomplish it. The old covenant pointed to it. The new covenant accomplishes it. So it's better. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. His ministry is better. He says that in verse 6. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. A more excellent ministry. Which is to say... It's more excellent because it's in the true tabernacle. It's more excellent because it's not in the shadow. It's not in the copy. It's in the true tabernacle, in the true sanctuary. It's in the very presence of God. What did the tabernacle symbolize? The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt, right? That's why the Shekinah glory came down upon it to show them that God is here in this place. And when it was time for them to move the tabernacle, the Shekinah would come up and would move, and they would move the tabernacle with them. And they knew this is what it was. When, when Solomon built the temple, the glory came and rested upon the temple for God to say, this is where I am, this is my presence, this is where I meet with my people. But it was symbolic. It wasn't where God actually dwelt. And he told David that. He said, you think really a house that you build with your hands is a place I can live in? Seriously, earth is my footstool. Come on. You, 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 just, you, you, you got nothing. But Jesus ministers in the true one, in the true temple, where God does dwell. And that makes his ministry more excellent. Because it really atones. And his promises are better. His promises are better. It's based on better promises, on better promises. What are the better promises of the new covenant? I, I thought about this in a, in a few different ways. I think, I think they're better, first of all, because they're based on an, an accomplished act. 
The promises that the new covenant bring are based on the death of Jesus, which is a historical event that we know occurred, right? It's based upon the resurrection of Jesus, which is a historical fact that we know occurred. It's based on the reality. In the Old Testament, the promises were there, but we were always looking forward. Always, always hoping he's going to come, right? One day, right? Think about the difference between the, 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 the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and as we look for him coming again. As we look for him coming again, it's a little fuzzier, isn't it? But once he comes, it'll be really solid, right? That's the point. It's better because it's based on an, an, an accomplished act. It's, it's already been done, and it's not symbolic. They're better because they're inclusive. They're inclusive. In the Old Testament, the, co- the, the, the covenant, everybody to receive the benefits of the covenant, the promises of the covenant, had to become a Jew, had to become an Israelite, had to become a, a, a descendant of, of uh, Abraham. And to do that, so if you were a Gentile, you had to come in and, and the males had to all be circumcised to become a part of that Jewish nation. They had to become a part of that. So Gentiles were excluded. So the gospel was held to a single region, but in the New Testament, it begins to spread out. Why? Because it's all inclusive. It's Jews and Gentiles together are co-heirs. Is it the Jews are the better, better believers? No. And that's what he's trying to point out, is that the, the Jews and Gentiles are together. They're co-heirs. They're equals within the kingdom. This is the inclusivity. In the Old Covenant, the, the emphasis was really a lot on the male, was it not? Not that it was a super blessing that the males got the circumcision issue, but uh, nonetheless, it, it, it was the males who were singled out to receive the sign of the covenant. But in the new covenant, men and women receive the sign of the covenant. Men and women are baptized. Men and women partake in the, in the supper. So there's an inclusivity that comes within the promises that Jesus brings. And in the new covenant, the promises are they emphasize the present and powerful Holy Spirit, that he is present and powerful in your life. These are just three ways in which the promises are better. So it's, it's that the ministry is better and the promises are better. What does that mean? What that means for us, I believe, is that we can live in that place. We can live in, in the place in which we have the better promises from God in which we have the better ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are new covenant believers and we worship the one true high priest. Jesus is that one true high priest. Let's let that sink in for a moment. He's the one true high priest because he alone serves in heaven. And he alone also mediates a better covenant. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live in that covenant that you've given to us. Help us walk after you in faith. And Father, as we prepare now to partake in communion, I pray that you will strengthen us with the body and the blood of our Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.